Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Beyond the Valley. Hello and welcome to another episode of CNBC's Beyond the Valley podcast. I'm Arjun Karpal, CNBC's senior technology correspondent, and I want to talk about a topic that has fascinated humans for centuries, space. It's a topic that's been on the mind of philosophers. It became part of the political fabric of the 20th century with the space race between the US and Soviet Union. And for a long time, the ability for space travel was very much in the hands of governments. But the last 20 years or so have been interesting because we have seen the emergence of private space companies as well. Think Elon Musk's SpaceX or Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. The conversation has gone from taking the first man to the moon to taking tourists up to space. There are so many elements of the space industry underway. While space tourism or trips further afield to Mars are exciting, I want to focus on something that is happening right now. And that's space companies launching satellites into orbit to provide internet on Earth. The purpose of this is to be able to provide low-cost internet to users around the world, particularly in more remote areas where traditional broadband infrastructure, which involves fibre, might be hard to construct. SpaceX is one company looking to launch thousands of satellites into space, but there are a number of others, including OneWeb, a London-based startup backed by major investors including SoftBank and Airbus. I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos this year and managed to catch up with Adrian Steckel, the CEO of OneWeb. He has spent a long time in the telecommunications industry. Steckel was CEO of Lucicel, a mobile carrier in Mexico, which he sold to AT&T in 2015. He was also previously the CFO of a Mexican media company, TV Azteca. Now, with all his focus on OneWeb, we talked about the company's plan to launch hundreds of satellites into space with the aim of bringing internet to people everywhere, even in the remotest parts of the world. So uh, OneWeb is a LEO satellite company, uh, and our mission is to provide broadband connectivity everywhere in the world, uh, and that's what we're working on. So we... uh, put six satellites up into space in February of last year. That brought our spectrum into use. And those were production satellites. We've learned a lot from flying them. Uh, And now, uh, in about two weeks, we start our our monthly cadence of launching 34 or 36 satellites, depending on the launch site, every month. Our initial constellation uh, will be uh, 648 satellites. uh, And uh, those will uh, cover the entire Earth. Uh, And uh, so you will have uh, connectivity in the oceans, in the North Pole, uh, in the tundra, uh, everywhere. Uh, just explain to us what, what a LEO satellite is. What, what is that? What does that mean? Well, if you think about the, the satellites that most people are used to, which is what you use for your sky or your uh, uh, direct TV or, or for any satellite connectivity, is you're pointing to a fixed spot uh, that's over the equator. Uh, and so those are big geosatellites, and they are geosynchronous, which is they are not moving in relationship to the Earth. So they're at a fixed spot. Um, and those sort of big flashlights, uh, in terms of beaming to the Earth, uh, are an inefficient use of spectrum, and they are very far away. They're 36,000 kilometers away. So they're always in a fixed spot relative to you, and that also reduces the use cases for them, aside from the fact that uh, they uh, have high latency uh, because of their distance. Our satellites are at 1,200 kilometers, uh, and instead of being in a fixed spot relative to the Earth, they are going at 
23,000 kilometers per hour. Uh, ours have a polar orbit, which means that they're going uh, south to north uh, and then north to south. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and all you have to do is look up to get the, the use of that satellite. So, like, let's talk about why space versus sort of the traditional broadband infrastructure we have now in the ground, you know, wires, etc. What, what does putting these satellites in space allow you to do? Why, why is that better? But the issue around the world is that population centers are condensed. And there are populations everywhere that uh, it doesn't make sense to, to take fiber to them. People often focus on the cost of laying the fiber to get to those populations, those remote populations. Um, but it's not just the laying the fiber, it's maintaining the fiber. So I've had you know, fiber uh, in the jungles of Colombia uh, or in the Andes. And uh, even in Mexico City, you know, and a truck comes by and they knock down the pole where the fiber is strung from. And there's a huge amount of maintenance that goes on in these things. So what I'd say is this is fiber from the sky. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, you, the, the, uh, the signal travels fur faster in space than it does through traditional fiber. So this is really about sort of these remote areas, perhaps, rather than, say, serving a big city as such. I think that, that over time, what you'll find is that our flying base stations will have more and more capacity, but the need is not in the big city. So we're looking for where the terrestrial operator uh, will not put a base station. You will not put a base station or a tower in the middle of the ocean or in the North Pole, in the middle of a desert, because it doesn't make sense. There are a lot of advances, a lot of capital and technology focused on widening the footprint of the existing operator. We don't look to compete against them. We look to partner with them to extend their networks and also deploy our capital where our capital will always be safe and get a good return. But you know, at the end of the day, there's so many areas of planet Earth that are not covered and billions of people that don't get quality broadband. Uh, and that's our mission. Our mission is uh, on a commercial basis, as a commercial company, to provide broadband everywhere to everyone. We're moving towards the reality of satellite constellations to beam internet to us. But the idea is not necessarily new. Way back in the 90s, a company called Teledesic wanted to do just that. But even with Bill Gates amongst his high-profile backers, it failed. So what's changed since then that's making this endeavour a reality? I caught up with Christopher Newman, a professor of space law and policy at Northumbria University in the UK, to find out. I think there's been a number of things. I think the main thing I would say is that there has been this, this you know, leap in technology that allows militarization the you know access to space is becoming an awful lot cheaper so it's cheaper to get up there it's cheaper to put stuff up there and actually the old model of, of having communication satellite out in geostationary orbit which is expensive to get to and these big single satellites which do everything but uh, you know a uh, 30-odd thousand kilometres away, I think the, the companies have realised that actually what they can do is they can put lots of little satellites a lot closer to Earth and achieve this, you know, even better results, so not have the latency for, for internet that a, a geosatellite would have. So I think there's there's a number of conditions that have happened. I think we've seen the rise of, of these entrepreneurial space companies. Um, we see the rise of these, you know, hyper-rich space players in, in the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And we also see, uh, you know, the, a, a rise in, in technology and, and the ability to do this. So I think it's, it's, it's almost like the perfect storm, if you like. 
With over 3 billion people not connected to the internet, the opportunity could be huge for companies in this space. But is the business model viable? I asked OneWeb's Adrian Steckel about the company's plans and viability of the business model. So it's a phased approach in the sense that our first, uh, our first phase is giving us global coverage. Uh, and then as we add customers, uh, we will put in a second phase, which will be focused on capacity and a diff- different type of orbit. Um, this is like a mobile system. Putting out the, the coverage is very expensive, but we think that there's a great advantage to uh, interacting with all the governments in the world uh, and, and where there's huge amounts of opportunities. We don't see our mission in terms of uh, going after uh, subscribers uh, in rich countries uh, that want an alternative to their cable system. Uh, that's not uh, our focus. That's not what motivates the people at my company. Uh, the peop- people are motivated by having a social impact and, and we're, we're really having an impact on the unconnected. And what about sort of the business model then? Is the business model to sort of become a service provider where you're able to charge a subscription to your service or is it working with governments for them to offer that? How, do you, how would you describe sort of your revenue streams and eventually how you go on to make a profit? So we think that this uh, company is highly profitable uh, and, and we're not focused on profit at, per se, but because we require billions of dollars of capital, we've already put in uh, billions of dollars, to attract capital, you need to have a return on that capital. Um, we also have the best spectrum and the highest priority of that spectrum on a worldwide basis. We think that the dialogue that we have with governments is to enable us for landing rights uh, and to enable an ecosystem and their participation uh, in terms of understanding what we're doing uh, and working within uh, the constructs that they have for Internet access. Uh, clearly, we are uh, partnering up. Uh, with local telcos and local companies. You will not get service directly from OneWeb. We will enable our partners uh, to do that, whether it be in the United States, whether it be in South America, whether it be in India, wherever it is, uh, we will be providing our service through somebody else. That's not because we don't think that we could do it, just in, in a local scale we could, in one country. I managed a country, uh, a business in a country that has 120 million people, and it's, you know, it takes five and a half hours to get from one end to the other. When you start talking about a footprint that has 180 countries, the level of complexity and the ability to service your customers, it, the execution problem is just, it, it's, it's just too difficult. And it, and it would change the way we're organized. And we'd rather partner up. The, in the DNA of our company uh, is to partner up. Uh, we're partnering up in Europe. Uh, everywhere we partner uh, because that's the way for us to construct a healthy ecosystem, uh, attract capital, get a return, and also be quicker to um, uh, giving service. One of the really interesting things I came across while researching for this episode of Beyond the Valley was something I hadn't even thought about. What happens with all the stuff humans launch up into space? And is there an impact to space? When we think about space, we tend to think about this vast and endless area. But that doesn't mean we can throw things up there without having an impact. There is growing concern about the impact of so-called space debris or space junk. Over the years, there have been thousands of rocket launches, each leaving things behind, such as stages from rockets. But it can also include smaller things like screws or other parts of the rocket. But in 2009, there was a collision between two satellites which created thousands of pieces of debris. And on separate occasions, China in 2007 and then India in 2019 destroyed their own satellites in an anti-satellite missile test. With more and more launches planned, the risk is that there is a sort of snowball effect with more and more junk created. This will be a risk to satellites in orbit in case they are hit. 
It is also a risk to rockets being launched up. The European Space Agency Director General Jan Warner summed it up nicely in a recent statement on the issue. He said, Imagine how dangerous sailing the high seas would be if all ships ever lost in history were still drifting on top of water. The scientific community is looking at ways to take junk out of space, however. The European Space Agency commissioned a project for 2025 to retrieve a specific piece of space debris. But this whole issue of space junk hit home to a bigger point that there is a lack of coherent rules and regulations governing space. Yes, there are bodies like the United Nations involved and treaties in place, but nothing on a global scale. In Davos, US Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross questioned whether a lack of agreed international rules concerning space exploration could inadvertently trigger a lawless Wild West situation. So I asked Professor Newman what he thought were some of the challenges around creating international space rules. I think it's really interesting the language that we use to describe space. So Wild West, Final Frontier, these are very much sort of, you know, images of the images that, that would be recognisable to America. But actually, again, we, we the talk about the Wild West as if as if it's lawless. There's there's a very established body of law that exists in outer space. Um, it's you know since 1967 we've had the Outer Space Treaty, which puts states in charge of supervising and overseeing national activity. We've seen, you know, bef even before then, there were, there were UN General Assembly resolutions which, which govern space activity. So I think this is a, a little, I wouldn't say disingenuous, but perhaps a bit of a, a, a misunderstanding of the way in which space works. It's not the Wild West, because actually it's individual nation states who are responsible for ensuring that national space activity is governed. So perhaps what Secretary Ross was talking about there was the, this feeling that there isn't a unified body in charge of space activity. But I think, frankly, given the current configuration of space activity, that's unrealistic. I think more what we need is a sharing of information, a sharing of, of an understanding of what the current space environment looks like. I think that's going to be a lot more useful than a notion of, say, a, a global space police force, which frankly wouldn't have buy-in from the people we'd need to have buy-in with. And so how do you go about creating something like that? What does that look like to you? I don't think you do. I don't think there is this Wizard of Oz character behind the curtain. I think what we need to do is we need to get as much information about the space environment, as much uh, space situational awareness as we can, and make sure that that goes out to, to space operators so that everybody who's operating in the space environment is aware of everybody else operating in the space environment. Um, I think, you know, I think to, to expect a global police, a global space police force at a time when, as you rightly said earlier on, we're seeing a, a, a retrenchment in terms of, you know, states being willing to give away sovereignty to non-governmental organisations. So I think what we're going to see is, is almost um, space traffic coordination rather than space traffic management. So lots of issues to think about on that front. Yes, space travel is exciting, but doing so responsibly really needs to be sort of front and centre. As we close out another episode of Beyond the Valley, I want to leave you with a thought from Adrian Steckel on how he sees the future. Well, listen, in 20 years' time, I think that you'll see a lot of different companies with, with reusable rockets. I think that uh, there, there are several companies working on, on transporting people around the moon, uh, or uh, using uh, uh, almost uh, spaceships to do uh, sort of uh, very quick travel from point to point. I think you'll see that there is not 
a square centimeter of the earth, except maybe Antarctica, that doesn't have um, uh, resilient, good internet coverage. And that's both a boon uh, and, and a problem, because uh, you will always be uh, reachable. Uh, you'll see a much more connected planet, and, and you'll see that being distributed to uh, all populations. What do you think of that future? What are your thoughts on space travel and the issue of space junk and regulations? Get in touch. I'm on Twitter at Arjun Karpal. And that's it for another episode of CNBC's Beyond the Valley. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Beyond the Valley.